Well, it's great to be with you and to be talking about one of my favorite words, which is the word flourish, which I think of as essentially being about becoming everything that one is capable of being, kind of fullness of being. I live in Philadelphia, as Steve mentioned, and uh, we are in the absolute season of flourishing in Philadelphia uh, in spring, where every tree that in the midst of the winter looked quite uninteresting suddenly burst forth with all of this possibility that was latent, possible there all along, but that we now see. And it's quite an amazing time of year. And it makes me wonder, when we talk about flourishing for human beings, what is our equivalent of that kind of springtime bursting forth? And it's going to involve somehow our deepest capacities, the things that make us most uniquely who we are, being brought to their fullness. So to know what flourishing is, in a way we have to know who we are first or who we're meant to be. So I wanna uh, talk about two things tonight that I think are essential to being human. And they are two ideas that don't necessarily seem to go together. They are authority and vulnerability. And the interesting thing about these two things, authority and vulnerability, is we human beings actually have far more of both of them than any other creature. We have more authority, and think of authority not just as having a role or a title of power, but uh, having capacity for meaningful action. We have more of that than any other creature, just as the creatures we are made in the image of God. And at the same time, we have more vulnerability than any other creature. And think of vulnerability not just as uh, emotional openness or transparency, though that could be part of it, but more broadly, as exposure to meaningful risk. Now here's the idea I almost want to just start with and presuppose with you tonight. I can't exactly prove it to you, but I actually think it's the case that when you have authority and vulnerability together at the same time, you have human flourishing. That is, human beings flourish when we both have the capacity to act in meaningful ways and when there's something really at stake. This is why sports is so compelling. Now, we saw the highlight reel. I noticed every pass was caught in that highlight reel. I don't know if you noticed. So we got like pure authority there. But we know what makes sports at all levels, from the backyard to the biggest stadium, compelling is that it's people with tremendous capacity for action who have trained their bodies and trained as a team to do something really powerful and meaningful together. But they're exposed to incredible risk in the form of competition. And when you have those two things together, it's electric, it's powerful, it's engaging. We love to see people in that condition. And if I asked you, what were the moments in your life when you were most fully alive, most fully yourself, I am quite confident we'd find that on the one hand, there were moments where you had capacity for meaningful action, you had authority, and you were also in a position of some kind of vulnerability. There was something really at stake in your life at that moment. That's flourishing. This allows us to do one of my favorite things in the last few years, which is to draw a two by two. 
This is, uh, we talked about the MBA playbook. There's only one thing you need to know from business school, and it's the two by two. So we're gonna do this tonight. You're gonna be sick of two by twos in 30 minutes, but uh, I've got a bunch for you. All about this basic dynamic of authority and vulnerability. So we'll plot authority on the y-axis. And some of you who are engineers, this is like your love language that I'm speaking right now. You're just so happy to see a graph. You're, you didn't hope for a graph, uh, but we've got one for you here at uh, uh, Celebration of Generosity. So authority on the y, vulnerability on the x. And so I'm going to just argue to you or suggest to you that when you have both, that is when you're up and to the right, high authority and high vulnerability, that's flourishing for human beings. That's actually what we most want from our lives in many ways. So let's think about the other corners for a few moments. Um, on the one hand, let's think about the opposite corner. So what would it be to have low authority and low vulnerability? So you aren't capable of much action, but you're also not really at risk. So the word that I'm going to suggest for this initially is safety. But safety is the condition where I'm not being asked to do anything, and there's no, there's no possibility of loss. There's nothing that is at, at risk or that I experience at risk in my life. And the interesting thing is, this is where every healthy human life begins, in that lower corner. And we actually do everything we can in our power when we become parents to create an environment of low authority and low vulnerability for our children. So when my children were small, like really small, the first few weeks, they loved to be swaddled. Uh, we would wrap them in blankets and you know, you're, you're imprisoning their arms and their legs and they love it. Babies like love that. It allows them to not worry about these flailing things they can't control and just sort of pay attention to the world. And they're so happy that you've swaddled them up. You've limited their capacity for action. It's actually good for them. And of course you've limited their vulnerability, right? You've covered up all the outlets and you take all kinds of care, right? So they can live in that lower left quadrant at the beginning. But any parent, uh, any healthy parent does not actually want our children to stay there. And our children themselves don't want to stay there. They don't continue to want to be swaddled. So what happens is, you can sort of think of it as a, a journey. It's the basic journey of human growth, right? This definition of flourish we heard, growth and development in a healthy and vigorous way. It's basically over time, as we grow from children to adults, we're given more and more authority and more and more risk. Our parents let us take more and more risk. So I remember swaddling my baby daughter, Amy. Uh, but then Amy got ready to go to preschool. So I'd like go with her to preschool. Uh, but then I'd leave her there. That's vulnerability, as well as giving her some new authority. Then she walked to kindergarten with her brother, but then a couple years later, she'd walked to elementary school by herself. So she's now 18 years old, and I can't talk about this at length because I will dissolve into a puddle of tears, but two years ago, she got her driver's license, right? So we're like way up on that graph at this point from dad's point of view. And so what is a license? It's, it's authority. It's granting you the authority to maneuver a 3,000 pound vehicle. And apparently our insurance company feels this generates great vulnerability at the same time, right? <laughs> And this is actually what I want for my child. I want her to move up. Now, we are literally this weekend picking the college, and I am up at night thinking about all the vulnerabilities of that, but I want it for my daughter. I want all the risk of it and all the authority of it because I want her to flourish. This is the healthy human sequence, up and to the right, from safety to flourishing. Those are two corners. What about the other corners? Well, let's think about vulnerability without authority. So lots at risk, but no capacity to act. 
And the word that I might suggest for that is suffering. And there's four corners here, and we're gonna talk about all of them and think about all of them, but this is the one corner, vulnerability without authority, that I can go into any room with any group of human beings, anyone in the world, as long as they've like at least been through middle school <laughs> and know that they've been there. This is a room of very accomplished people in many respects, very healthy people in many respects, very fortunate people. But I know every one of us at crucial moments in our life has had incredibly high vulnerability and no capacity to act. And if we were to gain the trust to tell one another our deepest, truest stories, we would talk about the lower right quadrant of this graph. And once you've been there, you start to get really interested in the opposite corner, which would be authority without vulnerability. And that sounds kind of appealing. Like I could have all the capacity to act, but no risk. And I would call this control. So control is the dream that I'd be able to have all the authority I want, but none of the vulnerability that has been so deeply the source of pain and anxiety in my life. So I want us to think a little more about this because the problem is, it is a dream. It's a mirage. You cannot have it. Not in any real world system. You can have it in very tightly defined mechanical systems. Many of us flew here on planes and we're very grateful for the degree of control we have over planes, though even there our control is not perfect. But with other human beings, such as for example children, you quickly discover, I do not have authority without vulnerability. In fact, the most vulnerable thing I've ever done was to be a parent. And while I had lots of authority in that role, it came with risk. And in human systems, and I think in the world that God made, control is not what we're meant for. And so in fact, the only things that really promise us control, falsely promise us control, are what we call idols. So I'm going to put idolatry in that upper left corner and suggest that what idolatry promises you is authority without vulnerability. Specifically, idols promise you two things. You shall be like God and you shall not surely die. And these are the two promises made on behalf of the fruit to the man and the woman in Genesis 3. But what are these two promises? You shall be like God, all the authority you can imagine and you shall not surely die. None of that vulnerability that you fear. And the serpent says, all you have to do is take a bite. Now that sounds implausible. Like how could we expect anything we could take a bite of uh, to grant us authority without vulnerability? But I will tell you, this happens all the time. And in the modern world, we tend to call these things sometimes addictions. So let me just give a, two quick examples of this. Um, when you first encounter this, it doesn't actually look like this. So let me give you a better picture of what it looks like the first time. So. So here's what it is to be a human being, okay? You walk into a room like this, full of people you don't know. Maybe you're 18 years old, you're off to college, like my daughter will be in a few months, and it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to walk into a room with people you don't know. What if I could hand you something that as you sipped from it, that sense of vulnerability would start to disappear, and a sense of godlike authority would descend on you? <laughs> And suddenly you're not nervous in that social environment. In fact, you're dancing better, like other people are better looking. It's awesome, right? And the moment you start using alcohol to manage that vulnerability in a social situation, you've gone from using it as a good gift of God that can 
enhance life in certain ways to an incipient idol that is giving you authority without vulnerability. The only problem is the next time you're going to have to have a slightly higher dose. It's not gonna be quite as effective. And over time, that thing that promised you authority without vulnerability will stop working for you. And this is the problem with idols. The problem with idols is they work at first. <laughs> at first they work, but they don't keep working. And there's a lot of things like this in our world that promise us authority without vulnerability. It's so interesting that one of the most powerful companies in the world has as its logo the bitten fruit. I mean, really, you cannot make this stuff up, right? And think about how technology, for which, of which Apple is just the most kind of consumer-facing, consumer-friendly version, how technology promises us all this capacity and promises to reduce our risk. And it's working, right? It works. So what's the problem? Well, all idols work at first. What's happening as this weaves its way more into our lives? How's it shaping the next generation? Why is there a spike in anxiety and depression as allegedly we're more able to connect with each other than ever before? Could it be that this thing that promises us something is actually going to deliver something very, very different? The person who, bought, who brought a lot of this to us um, in a brilliant way in many ways was Steve Jobs. And one of the most astonishing things we learned from Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs is that Steve Jobs had an idol. And it was not technology, not at all. He seemed to have a very healthy relationship with technology. He never let his kids have iPads. And it wasn't money. Steve Jobs had an idol in his life, something that he went to to give him that incredible piercing gaze, that sense of authority, and to minimize his sense of vulnerability in the world. And it was food. This is in the authorized biography of Steve Jobs. It was food. When he was 16 years old, Steve Jobs, this is back in the 60s, right? Steve Jobs went to an apple farm. You cannot make up these things. In Washington State, and this was in the 60s, so people were doing weird things. They were experimenting with like raw food diets, which are now back, but that's another topic. And he decided to only eat apples for two weeks. And on an apple-only diet, after two weeks of that, he experienced this kind of ecstatic elevation of personality because you, your mind and body get altered in interesting ways when you embrace these diets. And it gave him this incredible sense of control and that piercing ability to hold your gaze and convince you of whatever he wanted to convince you of. And Walter Isaacson says for the rest of his life, Steve Jobs had an eating disorder. It was what he went to when he needed to get up and to the left. And maybe we would never have heard about it, except that in midlife, Steve Jobs went in for a routine exam. And the doctors came back and they said, we need to do more tests because we see evidence of pancreatic cancer. And as you know, pancreatic cancer is one of the swiftest death sentences you can get. When the further tests were done, the, the doctors came back with tears in their eyes, tears of joy. And they said, you have islet cell pancreatic cancer. It's the one kind we know how to cure. All we have to do is this thing called the modified Whipple procedure, which will remove a part of your uh, pancreas, uh, and you have every expectation of a normal life. And Steve Jobs left that examining room and for 11 months tried to treat his cancer with food. He went back to the idol 
And Lauren Poljobs, his widow, said Steve didn't want to give over control of his body to the surgeons. So he, he went out and chased after every possible quack diet. And 11 months later, when he gave in to the pleading of his family and friends and had the procedure, it was too late. The cancer had metastasized. He was never again free of it. Less than 10 years later, he died of it, leaving behind his family and his children. The very thing that Steve Jobs thought would give him control literally took him to the other corner. When we embrace idolatry, it actually takes us to the place we thought it would not take us, suffering. I wanna add a layer to this briefly. And that's another kind of authority without vulnerability. What would it be, so idolatry is something we might end up in, and we have, every one of us has, has some story like that, acute or chronic or mild or severe. But what would it look like if you had a whole social system where some people got to live up and to the left and experience a kind of authority without vulnerability? I would suggest that the other biblical word for this is injustice. And here's why I think injustice belongs with idolatry up and to the left, and not just because the prophets, when they talk about one, always talk about the other. When they talk about false gods, they talk about unjust systems, and when they talk about unjust systems, they talk about false gods. It's because to stay up and to the left for very long, to maintain control, I think, it, I think there's a fundamental problem with that, which is you can't actually have control. It's an illusion. It's not meant to be yours. So if you want to be there, you have to find a way to outsource or offload your vulnerability onto someone else. There's a kind of law of conservation of vulnerability in the cosmos. You can't get rid of it, but you can, if you're powerful enough, displace it onto someone else. And how would you do that? How would you, well, think about how this works in, in the lives of people with addictions. It very often is the case that the person with the primary addiction, the person with the idol, let's say, of alcohol, as that idol stops delivering, as its power starts to slip or its power starts to be really made known in the devastation that it wreaks and the sense of being out of control that it's fostering, often the person with the addiction will lash out in violent ways against others, vulnerable people in their lives and create more vulnerability among their children or their spouse or their community as they deal with the way the idol is failing them. And indeed, in the long run, the only way that you stay up and to the left is through a kind of violence, through violently offloading the vulnerability you don't want to bear onto people who have no choice but to bear it. And when this happens in entrenched ways in the world, I think what we end up with is, is not just the suffering that every human being experiences, but I think this is the very essence of poverty that poverty is being on the receiving end of a social system in which some people get to maintain authority without vulnerability at the cost of other people ending up with constant vulnerability without authority, always sustained in some way, overt or covert, obvious or hidden, but in some way by violence. And in many ways, that is our world the world that was meant to go in the total other direction from safety to flourishing for every child, for every people, every community. Now is a world where some of us get to live or at least pretend to live up and to the left at the cost of systems of violence that put most of the world everlastingly in the suffering without, without authority corner. And you might say, I really would not, rather not live in that world. <laughs> so I have a suggestion for you. If you have enough money, you can actually go back to that lower left corner and you can just withdraw. 
and you can retreat to the safety that you may have known as a child or perhaps that you never knew as a child. And you can move into a very, quote unquote, safe community where you'll never have to experience the system of violence and injustice, but it's actually still there. Now, I wanna point out that we don't just camp out in one corner. Uh, I, don't, I got this from an entrepreneur who may be in the room tonight, I haven't seen him yet. Uh, but he pointed out to me that actually, often the cycle of wealth goes through all four. So you start out um, early on in your life, you, uh, and let's say in the venture that will eventually generate wealth, you actually feel very vulnerable. Uh, there's a lot at risk, you don't have a lot of authority yet, it's a little bit like being that, that uh, first time rookie uh, quarterback. It, there's a lot of sense of vulnerability and only a little bit of sense of authority. But it could be that over time your authority increases and you end up in that flourishing corner and really good things happen in that corner. This is where we're meant to live. But there's an interesting thing that happens. Over time, there start to be forces in the system you've created that start sort of blowing you away from vulnerability. And there are whole categories of professions whose whole job is to tell you how to reduce risk in your life at this point. And they all want to represent you and work for you. And they bill by the hour because they are very risk averse. Right? They want certainty about what's coming in because they live to move you over to that control quadrant. And then the dream is eventually you'll just be able to retire and, and withdraw. There's some lovely gated communities around Colorado Springs. We'd love to show you some of these properties where you will never feel anything but the safety of being surrounded by people of similar accomplishments, similar attainments. They will all be incredibly boring at this stage of their lives, but you'll be safe. And what no one really tells you is that in that condition of withdrawal, of retirement, you will actually end up in all kinds of ways profoundly vulnerable and having lost that capacity for action. This is the cycle in many ways of many kinds of good lives that start out with the best of intentions but end up extremely vulnerable and not contributing to the healing of the world. So the real question is how can we break this false axis, the axis we were never meant to be on that begins fundamentally with idolatry and injustice. And there's only one way. What if someone were to stare the idols and the system of injustice in the face and say, you lie. That promise of authority without vulnerability is a lie and I will demonstrate that you lie by actually giving up authority, rather than grasping authority, I will actually give up authority and I will enter into total vulnerability. And this is what's called sacrifice. And when sacrifice happens, healthy sacrifice, it's an emptying of authority in a way that no one in the grip of an idol would ever do. The idol always says, you need more, you need more, and you need less vulnerability. And sacrifice says, no way, I'm going to the most vulnerable place, and I'm going to empty myself of authority. And if someone were to do that, if someone who lived a completely flourishing life, as up and to the right as you can imagine being, were to voluntarily empty himself of all of that and go to the place of the most profound vulnerability and the most complete lack of authority, that would destabilize the false axis. 
And then if that same one, having gone to the dust of death, which is all vulnerability and no capacity for action, if that same one were not just to be placed in the tomb, but were to rise from the tomb back to more authority than ever, than we've ever seen in a human being, and yet with the marks of vulnerability still in his hands and his feet and his side, then the power of the idols would be broken. Because we would know they lied all along. They cannot deliver flourishing all along. They have never been anything but a mirage. And we now have the way to genuine life and it passes through the deepest sacrifice, fundamentally, of course, the sacrifice of our God, the Son of God. And then, in fact, we were never meant to live for long on the left side of this graph, that our lives are meant to be this return, this kind of emptying and then allowing God to just pour out his abundance that doesn't operate like the idol. Your best day with an idol is day number one. It's downhill from there. But the beauty of this organization, having done this for 20 something years, is you're now beginning to see and have demonstrated evidence in the lives of people in this room that God gets better year after year. You cannot outgive God. It just gets better and better. When Jesus turns the water into wine, the steward says, you've saved the best wine for last. No idol saves the best wine for last. God saves the best for last. He pours out more and more. And this re configures the way that we handle everything in our lives, not least the way we handle money. And we no longer primarily see money as a matter of owning, which is about control, being able to do something with it. We no longer primarily see it about saving, which is about kind of ensuring a, a baseline of invulnerability for our lives. And while investing is an amazing way of taking on risk and sharing risk with others so that flourishing can happen, and there's a lot of good things about that, even that doesn't become our primary model anymore. Because we begin to recognize that in the world system in which we're embedded, the sort of imagination is that even to the extent you invest and take on risk, or to the extent you save and actually protect yourself from risk, the goal is always to own. But we're going to have a totally different story because we are in the world to break the power of the idol of money, among other things, all idols. And we're going to have a totally different trajectory. And we're going to see our lives basically as about giving because the fascinating thing is, what can you do with money? You can invest it, which usually involves some measure of risk. You can save it, which usually involves some attempt to minimize risk. You can spend it and thus own something else but all of those leave you in, ultimately in charge. They all involve a measure of authority over money. The one thing we do with our money that empties ourselves of control is to give, by definition. When you give, you cede control, you hand it over. You let someone else use that as the input to their own authority, their own flourishing, their relief of the vulnerability of the poor. And so our story is going to be so different. It's going to be this constant exchange where we give and then we're lifted up and we're not just we, but the whole broken world begins to flourish.